Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of Designing with Climate in Mind. I'm John Coop. Climate change is, at its heart, a challenge we need to design our way out of. In this series, I'm chatting to a range of experts, all at the cutting edge of reimagining our buildings, cities and communities, and driving the changes we need to see right now. For the last eight years, my role at Interface has seen me meet and collaborate with leading thinkers and doers in sustainability, science and design. And in this podcast, I get to share some of these conversations with you. Today's guest is a bit of a sustainability hero of mine, Manish Datta from the UK Green Building Council. He'll be too modest to admit it himself, but throughout his career, Manish has been quite the trailblazer in sustainability and the built environment. He played a key role in designing and implementing the property side of Marks and Spencer's award-winning Plan A strategy. And he's also been a member of the faculty at the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership. Now he spearheads change at the UK Green Building Council. Today, we'll be exploring the UK Green Building Council's work on advancing net zero carbon and its role in promoting a green recovery. Whilst also looking at how COVID-19 issues of race, diversity and inequality can shape a green and inclusive recovery. Hi Manish, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Designing with Climate in Mind. To start off with, how are you and where do we find you today? Good afternoon, John. Well, today I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to you from my uh, hometown, Cambridge in the UK. And um, you know what, I'm very, very humbled uh, and very excited to be invited to share some ideas and thoughts with you and, and your listeners. I've really, really enjoyed listening to uh, your interviews with Oliver Heath, Mark Shader, Ella Gilbert, and, and recently Claire Potter. You're quite, you know, there, there, is a, there is a depth of talent, John, with you. That's very kind. I feel I still have my L plates in podcast land, um, but it's been a really great thing to be trying out um, as the workplace has changed during lockdown and it's it's just really nice to be able to share these conversations that you know we've had over the years at conferences and roundtables and events but to be able to share those with a wider audience so i was going to say i mean you've known us for a long time and i think you you had you had the honor of and the pleasure of kind of coming across our founder ray anson yeah. right, i believe yeah it, so so i suppose i should sort of uh do a little charting of where you know sustainability came into my life and and I suppose these are some of the leadership lessons that one sort of reflects back on and and Ray which I'll come on to in a minute definitely delivered one of my early leadership lessons in sustainability but actually my first leadership lesson uh, was from my son Yash uh, who's now uh, nearly 12 years old but when he was born it really changed my outlook and I think that is so key to so many people there's a there's a there are these moments of epiphany which change one's outlook and definitely the birth of the next generation of your family is is one of those and and my time horizons change you know when you have a child you start measuring time almost through them and so I started imagining what the world was like when I was born you know 30, 33 34 years um, before that point uh, and I grew up in Kenya um, and in a very sort of outdoor lifestyle, you know, full of um, sort of the Rift Valley coffee plantations, um, in-game reserves by the uh, Indian Ocean, et cetera, et cetera, deeply, deeply ingrained in nature. And and my, the other part of my heritage is the Indian heritage. I'm of an Indian origin. And so we used to go to India quite a lot in as I was growing up. And so really, really interfaced uh, very, very deeply with its climate, its cultures, um, and also its extremes in terms of wealth and poverty. And so, you know, when I look back at my childhood and, and thought about the world as it was, as I held my son in my arms, I, I realised that actually it was very different. And then I fast forwarded to what would the world look like when my son was my age, you know, in 30 or 35 years time. And that made me really, really scared. And that was a moment of outlook change for me. It was a moment where I wasn't just, you know, wanting to progress in my career to earn more money, to have a higher position. It was actually I wanted to leave... Um, a legacy that went way beyond that, uh, and, and that's when I started thinking about sustainability. And it was, a, and I was a program manager looking after Marks and Spencer's sort of store new builds and um, and uh, refurbishment programs at the time. And I, I came across this company called Interface, um, and they were a big sort of flooring supplier to us. Uh, and the reason they were a flooring supplier to us is because around that time when my son was born, 
we at Marks and Spencer had just launched Plan A, our sustainability program. And I didn't know much about Plan A or sustainability at all, but I was invited as a as a sort of a client of Interfaces to this lunch with a chap called Ray Anderson. Um, and I didn't know quite what to expect. I didn't really understand sustainability. When I sat there, though, uh, next to him, he left such a profound impression on me. Um, you know, he, he had some quite radical but quite humbly delivered views about the role of business. He thought about things in a very different way to any other leader, including Marks and Spencer's leaders at that time. And the commitments that, you know, under Mission Zero that were made under his leadership were profound. And how can anyone forget? And in fact, he used the terms, you know, in future people will go, like me, will go to jail. And what's the business case for ending life on earth? That lunch was probably another great moment of epiphany. And, and the big sort of leadership lesson I took away from sitting next to him and hearing him speak in very sort of humble and understated tones, but incredibly powerfully was, you know, um, was this sort of radicalism. I think he'd be really happy as he looks down um, with knowing that he had that impact. Yeah, those younger voices that are coming through are keeping us more accountable, whether it's through school strikes or even those that are kind of entering the built environment and coming with a, you know, what are you, my future employers, doing about the environment? kind of question um it's an exciting time and I think I was just reflecting on you know we've had an interesting couple of weeks recording this in kind of mid-August and there's been a bit of a hoo-ha-ha um within the UK around education and what had to change during lockdown but one thing I've been really amazed by is how articulate eloquent passionate um this younger generation are when they talk on sustainability and inequality and a whole range of different subjects. And I think back to when I was young, I used to worry that people were getting a bit apathetic. And the reality of now and the world we live in, in 2019, 2020, for a number of different reasons, is I don't have to worry about that apathy. People have, whether through like tragic circumstances or unfairness or through what you know what they've seen around them of the climate changing they are ready to act willing to act and out there acting apathy to me is 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 the last thing that people are at the moment what do you think about that Manish? I, I couldn't agree more John I, I think we've we've become a world of activists um, led by um, sort of the youth um, and we have many more platforms now to show that activism as well you know we can march obviously we can we can write, we can sing, we can, uh, but we've got so many platforms to express ourselves. Um, and, the, and the world has been relatively, you know, at, at, at the moment, those, there are, those platforms have democratised opinion. And as a, reason, as, as a result of that, um, we're now hearing the voices of the masses, of the people that perhaps previously didn't have the right platforms to talk. Um, and express themselves and and therefore and and also more importantly we are we are also starting to listen to those opinions as well i think that's the key thing absolutely i think 2020 has been a year where people have spoken more people have listened and i think it sets us up for some very interesting discussions going forward so manish Many of our listeners will be familiar with the great work the UK Green Building Council do. But for those that are not working in other sectors, tell us a little bit about the organisation. So the UK Green Building Council are a very, a fairly small but quite influential charity, which also acts as a think tank, as a campaigning body, as a learning and development organisation, as a uh, strategy organisation. And um, it was formed in 2007. Um, by 30 organisations, including Interface, and now has over 450 business, government and uh, academic members. Um, and, and really, its purpose is to create radical transformation from a sustainability point of view of the UK built environment. And its uniqueness is that it ties together in those 450 members every part of the property value chain, every part of the life cycle, if you want to call it in another way. So right from the investors to the clients, to the um, designers, the engineers, the architects, the, 
the contractors, the people that build, the people that supply to contractors like Interface in terms of flooring or lighting, like Signify, another member of UK Green Building Council, the FM companies that then maintain those spaces, the occupiers that occupy them, and then the organisations, again, all of all of the ones I've mentioned, that might be involved in the next avatar of that particular built asset. I've never put it this way, but you are great clique breakers because... At UKGBC events, you've connected the dots so well that you do see people from all different parts of the industry, from architects to construction firms to engineering firms. Um, You're also very good at doing roundtables, getting us to be able to speak the same language and talk to each other, which is also much, much appreciated because we sometimes can live a little bit in our own bubbles. Um, Another question for you on this would be, um, how how has COVID and how has lockdown affected the UK GBC in recent months? So, uh, John, like every organisation, you know, it's been it's been a very challenging period. Um, you know, we had at the back of 2019, uh, 20, buoyed by, you know, the, the sort of increase in awareness and action around sustainability. We had our most successful every year. And if your listeners get a chance, we've got an impact report on our website, which sort of goes into quite some detail about just how successful it was. And then, of course, around mid-March, the reality of of the pandemic started to dawn on us. And we had to sort of realign our program to a new reality. We're a very small charity that relies on uh, membership income from our members and and from sponsorships and funding from uh, for our programs so actually you know when that's under pressure for our members it puts tremendous pressure on us so we had to almost not quite rip up but we had to realign we had to you know batten down the hatches and become very frugal in the way we deliver impact but we've also been very conscious that we need to continue supporting our members during COVID-19 um, by delivering the benefits that they require of us. Um, you know, my I lead on membership and, and my key job is to continue to deliver value for our members. So how we do that in, in sort of a more digital, accessible online uh, way was a, a very early priority. And we continue to do that. And in fact, it's been really rewarding because we've been able to actually create more impact because people have been able to access those materials much more to collaborate, learn and support each other much more. The key thing is that we believe and our members believe more importantly, that action to tackle the climate and ecological emergency is is here, is, is, is really critical. And actually, alongside um, the benefits to nature, the benefits to uh, our ecology, it can also help stimulate economic recovery and, and support economic resilience in the long term um, and get us out of this crisis that we're in. And the built environment um, plays a really crucial role in the post-COVID sort of economic recovery. Projects that it has lots of projects that can stimulate clean, green, uh, clean growth and create jobs in almost every part of the country. It really is all, you know, all encompassing. It can really support the levelling up agenda, you know, and creating more equality, improve people's health and well-being when it's been so, so uh, damaged recently um, and has never been more important than it is now. In fact, you know, the Energy uh, Efficiency Infrastructure Group, which is a body that, uh, a sort of a, a voluntary body made up of lots of organisations, including UK Green Building Council, has has calculated that a bold programme of retrofits um, of, of, of homes and all buildings could create hundreds of thousands of jobs and, and help the industry, industry generally, to recover rapidly and, and save billions of pounds on energy bills, money that could, you know, help boost consumer demand for a wider range of goods and services that could help restart the economy. So, so you know, in terms of the COVID period and the period that we're now in, which is, so I think, a, a decade, maybe longer, of green recovery we think we want, um, I think the built environment has to be right at the very centre of this. And we've we've um, published a green recovery paper uh, that we've set out to government, which 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 outlines the key policy recommendations that we we'd like to see, and we'd like you know new homes and buildings to be uh, net zero within that. We want there to be tremendous investment in home energy efficiency retrofit. We want at the same time as concentrating on carbon um, and mitigating carbon, we also need to be mindful that some carbon and therefore the consequential warming from that is locked in. And therefore, we need to make sure our assets, our communities, our people remain climate resilient. And we want, in in creating that resilience, we want to prioritise nature-based solutions and biodiversity within that. 
So, you know, whilst, um, you know, we, we may have heard uh, the expression build, 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 well, we, we're not resting at that. We, we want, obviously, the built environment to be the heart of that, but we don't, we want it to build back better. And so we, we really welcome what the government have set out in, um, you know, a few weeks back with their sort of two billion pounds green homes grant um, voucher scheme and a billion pound investment in, in making public buildings, uh, including schools and hospitals, much, much more sustainable. We welcome that because it will help, you know, create jobs, lower bills, enable better health and well-being outcomes. But we see that very much as a first step. We think that it's essential that it doesn't remain as a one-off, you know, um, um, intervention that it's uh, that, that creates boom and bust. Because we've seen that in the past in the industry. We want this to be a comprehensive plan, a long-term plan to improve the whole of the UK's built stock, uh, to create thousands and thousands of jobs, uh, and also to be underpinned by policies and legislation that helps business build with confidence, um, that helps, um, you know, tradespeople to find new vocations, again, with that confidence, to grow capacity. So um, it's it's really important that this is done with, with long-term view in mind and not just something that we do for a few few months. You know, you, we can't uh, create a furlough scheme in this in this situation. It has to be a longer term um, and, and quite seismic uh, shift um, and we need to think about, you know, not just public sector uh, financing, but how can we, how can the government mobilise more attractive private sector financing as well? Imagine a world where I've got the power to put you in front of the cabinet. Now, whether you want to be there or you don't, that's up to you. But if you were going to choose one or two things, and yet you, you're prioritising what you would recommend that they do right now through the recommendations. UKA, GBC were making what? What were those one or two key things to to knock the UK government? And you know, we have an audience that's around the world, so you can imagine you're saying the same to an EU level or at a global level. But what one or two things would you say? This is where you start. The very forefront of our thinking at UK GBC is around zero carbon, net zero carbon. That is the one. Um, that is our sort of almost hero campaign at the GBC. Uh, it's called Advancing Net Zero. And that is the one thing. And, and it's great, you know, that we were able to work with others in the third sector to convene over 200 leaders, both last year and this year, to call to government to put in place last year, which feels like a long time ago now, the 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 change, the Climate Change Act in the UK to become net zero by 2050. I think that was a, a very important call to arms that business joined us and our members joined us on. And then equally, you know, more recently, again, working with the Climate Leaders Group and others, we've called upon the government to put really strong zero carbon ambitions at the heart of the green recovery. So I think net zero carbon has to be at the very heart of this. It would be the one thing that I would take to the government uh, to talk about, John. Just because there might be some people who are not so familiar with the term net zero, how would you describe it to, to someone that was outside of the built environment? Great. So, so the commitment comes from a global campaign that the World Green Building Council and Green Building Councils right around the world created back in 2017 called Advancing Net Zero. And this is a global project um, to accelerate the uptake of net zero carbon buildings to them being 100% net zero carbon by 2050. The project uh, essentially works with the Green Building Council network to develop a definitions, frameworks, tools, resources, um, certification schemes where relevant, and training programs to actually uh, define what net zero means for um, the, the sort of build the built sector. Uh, and it also the other very important part is that it promotes and inspires action and leadership on what that looks like once it's defined and agreed within business with governments, both local and national, and NGOs, so that we can create this huge global movement uh, and it's not and it's done in a consistent way so um, essentially um, there are two sort of um, asks of the commitment so it, it asks um, sort of whether it's at city region business organization or building level is that you reach net zero carbon operating emissions within a building or a portfolio by 2030 and to advocate for all buildings to be net zero carbon in operation, which is for, uh, in, in terms of carbon speakers, for scope one and two related energy emissions 
by 2050. So that's things that, you know, powering your lights, that's powering it. your that's heating. It. It's, it's what operates buildings, you know, in terms of energy operation. That's exactly it. So the utility, the utilities, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it's not, you know, the, these, um, the, I mean, I've sort of tried to do it justice in like a couple of minutes. And it's a lot more complex than that. I'm sure everyone would appreciate. And we, it's, and it's not just, you know, some sort of um, very brainy carbon geeks in green building councils around the world creating this definition. Let me, let me be clear. This is a co-created framework and definition by industry for industry. So in the UK, for example, we have convened over 100 of our members under our program around net zero carbon to create the, the framework, to create then the, the, the guidance um, and, and the guidance by different building typologies that is now emerging from the framework. This is over 100 pages long, which looks at build new buildings and existing buildings. It looks at how you design for zero carbon if you're creating a new building to achieve that in operation. For existing buildings, it looks at operation. It looks at how you procure renewable energy for your buildings, either from what's on-site or from off-site procurement. And then it also tackles the slightly challenging topic of, of offsets. And we've actually just launched, again, with the industry in the UK, a task group which has now got sort of 50 people on it to look at what, you know, defining what good quality ethical offsets look like um, so that people can make that part of their net zero journey. As of today, 100 businesses, organisations and governments from across the world have now made these commitments that I've just described. And in, in, in numbers, that's 6,000 built assets with 32 million metres squared of floor space, uh, which, which represent 100 billion pounds worth of turnover, affecting 3.4 million tonnes of carbon. And if you think about the impact of the built environment globally um, and how it relates to the IPC, IPCC-guided uh, need to remain below the 1.5-degree threshold, we're almost, you could almost say that we're gatekeepers to about half the emissions the world produces um, in, in, in the way it operates. And therefore, if we don't sort out the built environment and, and adopt a net zero mindset strategy, delivery plan, uh, solutions, um, et cetera, et cetera, quickly, then we don't have a hope in reach, you know, remaining below that 1.5 degree threshold that the IPCC has recommended, after which you know, it's difficult to, um, the, the, the consequences after which are quite scary. The size so, of the problem is, is, is huge, but it's, it's great to hear that ripple effect that's happening because the UK Green Building Council and others are joining the dots. And, you know, that news today is, you know, it's a reason for a bit of, a bit of climate optimism, a bit of hope and a bit, you know, not to underestimate the road ahead is going to be tough, but it just shows that that talk is starting to become action. That I did have a question about was, you mentioned operational carbon and scope one and two and those direct emissions and the energy side. But what about embodied carbon? What about carbon that's in the supply chain in that scope three, as they call it? How can we follow up some of the great success that we've had within the industry, reducing operational carbon by measuring and reducing embodied carbon? And what role do the built environment have in making this happen? A very, very critical role, um, John. So I think it's well picked up there. Uh, you know, while we have got a bit of a plan and a, and a, and a way of mobilising action around um, operational energy-related carbon emissions, we acknowledge that actually emissions from building and construction also comprise um energy from sort of extraction and manufacturing of materials that you may, you know, you may call embodied carbon, I guess, or upfront carbon, uh, and the construction processes themselves. And actually, days, uh, those broadly make up 11% of the energy consumed. And, you know, as we head towards a world population of under just under 10 billion, which has recently been revised, and the building stock continues to increase in size, carbon um, emissions released before even the built assets used in its supply chain or you may call upfront carbon will will be in, in it's been predicted will be responsible for half of the entire carbon footprint of new construction between now and 2050 so that is a massive contributor to the remaining carbon budget if we are to remain below that 1.5 degree threshold and actually is also quite a big threat if we don't deal with it so so the built environment um, sector has such a critical role in not just address addressing operational but also addressing upfront carbon. 
the vision is basically to say a bit like operational carbon that by 2030 all new buildings infrastructure and big refurbishments will have at least 40 percent less embodied carbon uh, with significant uh, um, upfront carbon uh, reduction for all new buildings um, so that's the one target and then by 2050 for the same set of infrastructure refurbishments we want you know we want to have net zero embodied carbon um, and includes new and existing buildings so there those are really strong ambitions uh, and in the meantime before we really put them into sort of commitment status we are strongly advising all of our uh, members right across the world to to start monitoring and measuring uh, embodied carbon emissions i i really enjoyed reading your guidance and and that of the the london energy transformation initiative or letty um and the carbon primer because i think for many Embodied carbon represents a bit of a blind spot. And we talk about it when we talk to our customers and stakeholders at Interface. We sometimes use the analogy of an iceberg, that the operational carbon side has been reasonably easy to see. But because it's not been so easy to measure, the embodied carbon's often been forgotten. There's, you know, we're a manufacturer of stuff. So everything we make, we use... Um, materials we have a manufacturing process we need to get those materials shipped around and that all contributes to embodied carbon i think for us as a business we've been asking our suppliers and our supply chain around the embodied carbon of materials we buy but we've also increasingly been hearing from our customers inquiring you know what's the embodied carbon how can i find out where do i where do i look what's an in environmental product declaration what are the new tools and i i honestly think this is a huge growth area of interest for the sector i, I couldn't agree more and, and of course you know uh, hundreds and hundreds of organizations have now um, made uh, and have verified science-based targets which means that they're looking not just at the carbon in their own part of the value chain that they reside in but the whole value chain they're responsible also for supply chain carbon for example and mitigating that which is why hopefully some of your customers or most many of your customers will be coming to you to ask for what your what the emissions are in your part of the value chain that they then take from um that they use in their in their sort of facilities be it carpets be it lighting be it whatever uh, and so it's really key. And, and and the way we're translating that within the sort of zero carbon, uh, advancing that zero carbon campaign is to is to develop a whole life carbon vision. So is to think not just about certain parts of the carbon journey, be it upfront carbon or embodied carbon or operational carbon, but look at it as a whole, you know, a, a net zero whole life carbon vision that acknowledges the time value of carbon emissions from materials and construction, as well as recognizing the roles perhaps of offsets and facilitating the transition to zero carbon um so it's really important that we don't just look at these bits of carbon around the value chain we look at it as a holistic you know life cycle analysis in the truest sense absolutely and then just to touch on something we mentioned on the offsetting side you mentioned you, you have a new report would you talk to us a little bit around around that in terms of what role offsets are currently playing, why they might be important, and where that world looks to in the future too. Yeah, so I, th I think, look, while we transition to a zero carbon society as a whole, which hopefully we'll get to well within 2050 in the UK and broadly in the world, then there, requires, there needs to be a transitionary stage, which requires us to think about how we may, you know, after having become as efficient as possible, both in, in the way we create things and the way we use things in buildings, um, we then try and procure everything we can, which is, you know, renew from renewable sources, which, which isn't always practically possible everywhere. And therefore, there's a residual energy um, sort of balance or a carbon balance. And that's where the role of offsets until we become a 100% globally zero you know zero carbon society there is going to have to be a transitionary step and offsets will help us in that transition the problem is that you know lots of organizations there are lots of organizations that provide offsets there are lots of standards about offsets all um, you know there is no particular standard or definition or framework or way of defining what good quality offsetting looks like for the built environment for any sector 
And that's what this particular piece of work as part of the Advancing Net Zero campaign is trying to do, is trying to say what is, you know, what is, off, what is offsetting, when should you use it, and how should, how, should you, what is, how should you define good quality offsets, and how do you measure for those and account for those within your net zero carbon journey? That is the piece of work that we've just commenced. It's, it's, it's not easy, but I can tell you there is a huge hunger in the industry for this piece of work. And there aren't many other or, if, or, or any other organization that can convene the sort of value chain of the industry in the way that we have. Um, to, In fact, the task group, a uh, little anecdote for you, was the most um, subscribed to task group ever. Now, the task, we, we do all our work through task groups that you mentioned earlier, John, which is convening uh, real industry experts from a variety, from all of our membership, you know, 450 organizations. We put an invite to everyone. And this one, I think, had, you know, was inundated with requests to participate because people felt they could really add value. And the, and the final sort of um, list of, uh, of people that are now contributing to creating this thinking around offsets and renewable energy procurement is like reading a who's who of sustainability leadership in the built environment in the UK. It really is a brilliant centre of excellence that we've created there. And we look forward to, you know, reading what they come up with. It sounds like... Um... I mean, I, I say it sounds like I know it's a crucial issue and one that many companies uh, are talking about around the built environment. And from our perspective or my perspective at Interface, carbon offsets represent an important stepping stone. Often you're supporting projects that are helping reforestation or developing new forms of renewable energy. But you're right, that transparency needs to be there. Um, I always turn to, I have a couple of friends that work in natural capital partners and they, you know, they offer great projects, they're great connectors, but sometimes you need to have the challenge of different stakeholders around the table of different viewpoints. You can't always just rely on what an expert says to you because often they're sending you their consultancy service or their <laughs> offer. So the work the UK Green Building Council are doing in the report and in bringing those groups together has been absolutely absolutely crucial and I, i'm really kind of pleased that it was one of your most subscribed task forces to date yeah and, and i think that collaboration point there john is so so critical uh, and so important to make um and we work you know right across the sector uh, and and it's essential to our work you know it's whether it's our program on net zero carbon or circularity social value climate resilience wherever i look when i look at the list of people involved they really it really is a, a cross section of the sector many people have had the chance to focus their energies a little bit differently due to covid and lockdowns and different working patterns on our past episodes you know we've heard from oliver heath talking about long cycle rides and connecting with nature. Claire Potter talked around restoring a camper van and making sourdough. Mark Shale has been running these communions to connect disruptors. But for you, what did lockdown give you a chance to do? I think, John, um, it, it gave me a real chance to understand and feel the burden of privilege. And what I mean by that, is um, 13 years ago, my parents created a, a small charity um, called Rama Foundation, which is a Cambridge-based charity, primarily uh, trying to make a big difference um, to the lives of vulnerable people and communities in India. Um, and it works in the areas of education and health partnering uh, with organisations here in the UK, like the Cambridge University Hospitals and Cambridge Global Health Partnerships, essentially to take professional volunteers from the UK to India to upskill our partner NGOs in India, working with these vulnerable people and communities in India, particularly in the sector, in the healthcare and education sectors. Now, we were planning uh, right in the peak of lockdown um, or peak of the sort of virus here in the UK to go to India in April with a cohort of these um, um, these volunteers, uh, people from the hospital um, as we did last year, um, to you know, who've donated their time, fundraised themselves completely on their own to come with us to support um, these NGOs out in India working with these vulnerable communities. Unfortunately, we couldn't do that. But what we've pivoted to and are starting to do now is to deliver, try and deliver the same benefit via sort of online methods. Um, 
But what we've realized in doing that and, and liaising with our partners out in, in India during this period, and of course, India is still, uh, I suppose, reaching um, its peak in terms of the coronavirus at the moment, is that actually applying lockdown to 1.4 billion people uh, and, and trying to you know do that in a socially distanced way in relatively dense, low-income urban neighborhoods in places like India is, is re- resulting less in a sort of... Um, a virus pandemic and more in a hunger uh, pandemic, um, and that has been very very humbling to be uh, to be to understand. And what we've done as a charity is to pivot all of our work, not just to try and do it virtually, but the the the, the, the funding that we create is actually now been to provide food uh, rather than to provide you know um, better nutritional um, and educational and health outcomes. It's been purely to provide food parcels because. For about three to four hundred million Indians, um, the lockdown has meant that they've not been able to earn money. They're daily wage earners and they've lost all income and access to food, which means that it's turned into a humanitarian, as I call it, a hunger crisis. And therefore, the need has changed and the need that we need to satisfy as a small charity has changed. And we've been helping. uh, We've helped around 500 families now get to this period by providing them with food parcels. It's small but very impactful action. And, and actually, by doing this, uh, which is, has taken some of my free time during lockdown, it has enabled me to understand my, the burden of the privilege that I'm in. So you know, the issues that we talk about in terms of net zero carbon, et cetera, et cetera, much of the stuff that we've talked about pales into insignificance when you don't even have a meal in front of you. you know, where does net zero carbon feature? in the sort of thinking of people that just don't have enough food to eat, that can't survive two or three days henceforth because they don't have access to food. It's very humbling, and it, and it has, it's kind of uh, been another moment, as, as many things have in the last three or four months, um, of reflection for me and, and almost epiphany to give me a further boost to want to do more um, broader than just the privileged sort of status that I live in uh, in my sort of current context. I mean, that's amazing work, and I... I totally agree. I mean, in many ways, I think about my own experiences um, traveling in India and just walking through the streets of Calcutta um, amongst families that were out and about. And then when COVID hit, just thinking, you know, it's an entirely different setup. I guess where this takes us to is this concept of a, if we're going to have a green recovery, I think we need to make it an inclusive recovery too. And I, I just wanted to ask for your thoughts in relation to that, in relation to the built environment and beyond. I think it's a, it's something that actually um, the last three or four months, regardless of where you are in the world and what the context is, um, whether it's New York, London, Calcutta, Delhi, Tokyo, wherever, um, the fact this, the whole sort of social aspect of sustainability has been shone a very, very bright spotlight upon. And what we've seen, actually, um, in in so many different ways is that um, we've seen the real inequalities of the world. Um, And the built environment is also uh, contributes to that. You know, so we I'll come on to a program we've got around social value uh, at the UK GBC. But we've seen, you know, that um, there's been some real correlation between where you've got really dense urbanization and the amount of infection rate. That might not, and, 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 and you know, there might be some genetic link to that. And then therefore you've seen in this country, especially some evidence about BAME communities being more susceptible to uh, COVID. But actually, I also think that there's, it's, it's much more profound than that. I think it's about, um, you know, social inequality. It's about how those communities choose to live culturally as well in, in families. And therefore, you know, lots of people together. They can't afford necessarily to live in big houses, so be you know uh, well spread out, or live in separate houses, even in some cases, which means that the risk of uh, infection spread is greater in those sort of urbanisations. So the built, the design of built environment, um, the fact that we've got you know quite dense urbanisation in some parts of the world, the fact that it doesn't take into account particularly the cultural requirements of the people that live in them, uh, or the you know social classes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All of this has has been magnified in the last few months. In many ways, the built environment contributes to the inequalities that are being seen. And therefore, it can't just be a green, it needs to be a just, it needs to be a socially equal uh, recovery as well. And we have a tremendous opportunity now as we're kind of resetting society to do that. Um, 
But it's also, you know, I, I have to also talk positively. You know, COVID has also shown that where businesses have taken sort of proactive measures to to protect, support and value their sort of human stakeholders, be it their staff, their customers, the communities or their suppliers, they're, they're, they're likely to be better positioned um, in, the, in the long term. You know, investors are seeing that. Uh, and our members have been really, um, you know, there have been some outstanding stories about how they've risen to the challenge of supporting their local communities and and delivering better social purpose in this time. You know, working tirelessly, uh, whether it's in, in retail or otherwise, uh, with local communities to providing relief, um, conversion of space to healthcare or homeless shelters. Some of our members have been involved in that. You know, rapid construction of critical health facilities has been another thing. Landlords, landlords and occupiers have had to work together in quite atypical ways to find financial solutions through this period. You know, architects and engineers have been designing face masks and PPE kit. But beyond these initial actions and the initial shock, you know, we have to um, reappraise almost every type of building typology to understand its sort of um, benefit, uh, not just, you know, its environmental impact, but its social benefit as well. You know, the way we shop, the way we learn, the way we seek enjoyment from leisure activities, the way we consume buildings, places, cities is going to change. You know, what we must make sure is that those changes are not just the privilege of the people that can afford them. You know, it's not just um, that those changes are and the benefits of those changes are felt by every part of society. Otherwise, I think the recovery will fail. Uh, you know, we might have a zero carbon economy, but it won't be a very equal one. The audience that we have for this podcast is a mix of designers, sustainability professionals. Um, what would you ask them to do? What would be one or two things you might ask of our, our listeners in terms of how they could help make sure that a green recovery can be a more inclusive and resilient one? So I, so I, I put out a challenge to them, and this is how I might frame that challenge, which is how can urbanisation be re-engineered in this period of reset that we're in to not just be zero carbon, to not just be climate resilient, not just be efficient and adaptable in use, not just enable the enhancing of nature and also human well-being, and, but also to be accessible to all anywhere in the world, regardless of social, uh, economic, racial background or where, where they are in the world. That is the challenge I would put to our designers, our engineers, our architects, etc. out there. I think that's a great challenge and I think it's one that I'm happy for any of our listeners to step up to. Manish, I'd like to take a bit of a different tack. I want us to look a little bit around issues of race, diversity and inclusion and the built environment. Because we've talked about climate change being very much a design issue, but it's also a social inequality issue too. As an industry, the built environment, I feel, needs to learn a lot by exploring, discussing and acting on these issues of racial injustice and inequality. Earlier, you and I discussed privilege. And I think as an industry, we really do need to look inwardly and question whether we've done enough. I think it's a very good provocation, John. So, so you mentioned industry. Let me just put some data out there, just to just to bring, I suppose, to the fore about the the the, the sort of scale of this as an issue. Uh, in 2017, there was some research done by the Policy Exchange that looked at the extent of ethnic diversity across occupations in England and Wales, and it found that ethnic diversity was very unevenly distributed across different sectors. And in fact, the environmental sector, the sustainability sector, was the second least diverse profession in the UK. Three point, only 3.1% of, sort of sustainability professionals uh, identify as sort of BAME. Compared it's a shocker. 19, I mean, I'm 19.9% of all other occupations. I mean, you know, so, so the profession that should be championing this and should be delivering this is actually the second least diverse in the UK. Let, let's let's turn our attention to the built environment then, right? So that's the that could be sustainability professionals in any sector. But if you look at the built environment, you know, if 14% of UK's population classifies as BAME, only 1.2% of 
of the built environment sector is based. So whichever way you look at it, whether you look at it as a sustainability professional, which you and I are, or also we're professionals in the built environment, we have a systemic issue here that we need to solve. So let me then personalize it, because I think it's really interesting. I, I, the, the killing of George, George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests, really, really um, something new sort of arose in me that hadn't arisen before. I asked, started asking myself some very big and new questions. And actually, if, I, if I'm being really honest on this podcast, I felt, I felt very conflicted. So it's really, you know, it's it's posed some very tough questions for me, uh, you know, and and for my sort of family and friends, et cetera, et cetera. So what should I do now? Where should I stand on this? Because I I, I feel like I've been silent. I feel like I've been letting it happen around me or ignoring it, perhaps being conditioned by the system to do so. I'm asking, you know, where do people that I work with stand on this personally? This is probably, this podcast is probably the first a public statement I've made personally about this. And I've talked about it. We've had a great dialogue at UKGBC about it, and I'll come on to that in a minute. But, you know, I've not talked about it enough. Even when I was at MS, I haven't, you know, I feel really terrible that when approached by a very, very thriving and, and well-established BAME network in MS, I I didn't partake in it in a great deal. Um, and I was it was because almost I was sort of numbing myself to it. I was almost pretending that this isn't an issue. This isn't an issue, but it is, you know, the data speaks for itself. You know, we have challenged ourselves as an organization at UKGBC to, to start with a dialogue about this at the board level and in the team. So, so, and there are some really interesting um, ideas emerging, you know, so we want to think about how do we measure? Well, where do we stand on this? You know, how do we measure up against whatever best practice there is? So, and, and not just measure, how do we disclose? And how, and what, what do we talk to our members about? You know, do we want them to do the same? Big questions in our mind. Do we target recruitment efforts to ensure that there's better and more accurate representation from BAME communities in our own team, in our, you know, right from internships to new board members? Do we think about how we convene those task groups? You know, how do we convene thought leadership? Does it, is it representative of community as a whole? Because when you look at the pictures, I can tell you now it's not. So how do we go about getting better representation in our sort of task groups, in our thought leadership, in designing our programs? Uh, and how do we, you know, how do we also introduce learning? Um, how do we make this part of our learning? And how do we talk, talk more openly and, and comfortably about this? And how do we indeed, we have a great platform, you know, we have a very big social media presence, we have a very big presence in the industry. How do we use that platform to give uh, opportunities for organisations that are already doing great work in this space? It's been a mirror to us as a society. It's been a mirror to us. And now it's our responsibility to do things differently. It's our responsibility to demonstrate how we can work towards a more just society. And I don't think anyone has all the answers, but I think one thing that I found in the last couple of months is that the richness of the discussion and going back to an early point, the collaboration between different groups to find the right answers on this issue of diversity alongside that issue of climate is stronger than it's ever been before. Yeah, I, I don't think you can, we can no longer look at, uh, you know whether it's carbon circularity and and everything that we've really talked about in in on its own we just can't it's just it's not going to work we're not going to have achieved um the sort of outcomes we want uh, under the un sdgs if we look at things and that's why they're a system right there are there's a whole 17 of them there isn't just one on carbon or one on um resource use or on on the the health of our oceans and I think we need to look at this systemically as well. Um, and for too long, uh, I've been guilty of, of sort of compartmentalizing these issues and not looking at them in the whole, not looking at whether or not, you know, houses in East London, um, which are probably the most calm and inefficient prop, uh, um, sort of assets that, we're, that we've got to deal with in order to reach that sort of zero carbon by 2050. But they also tend to uh, be houses that are, you know, are, are full of communities that are, are probably the most disadvantaged in the UK, and and for East London, read other parts of the UK as well, and and that probably can't afford um, zero carbon uh, retrofits as as well as some of the other parts of society can. These are very interlinked um, issues that we need to look at, not as compartments, but in the whole. Manish, I'm really sad. We're going to have to start bringing things to a close because. We're going to run out of time. And I, I just wanted to thank you for your 
your insights on the UK Green Building Council, but also your your honesty and frankness and willingness to to explore issues with us today. As a as a final note, if people want to find out more about your work or the work of the UK Green Building Council, how can they find out a little bit more and maybe continue the discussion with you? Well, the easiest way, and I would say this, John, if uh, in my, putting my membership hat on, is, is come and join our community uh, and and start participating in, in the changes that we want to try and um, make. But, you know, if you want a bit of taster of what that looks like, then our website, our social media channels are, is a great place to start. Um, but very happy to have a conversation with anyone who isn't part, formally part of the community to come and join us. We The more of us that we can have in these movements, whether it be for carbon or or social uh, value or diversity or whatever, the better. You know, it really is all inclusive at UKGBC. Well, Manish, we'll pop the links to some of the, the channels on the blog and and through the, the podcast pages. But I just wanted to say thank you for your time. Thank you for the leadership that you've brought to us, but also the UK Green Building Council have done so today. And, you know, we've been really privileged to, to hear your thoughts today on the pod. It's been a privilege to be part of it. Thank you. And I wish you success with the rest of the series. It's been great so far. That was fascinating. Plenty of food for thought there from Manish on how the UK Green Building Council is putting a focus on advancing net zero carbon to a green recovery being an inclusive and diverse one too. Plus, how collaboration across the construction sector will be key to addressing the climate emergency. On the next episode of Designing with Climate in Mind, I'll be chatting to Cressy Wesley of Elvis and Cressy about the power of design to do good for both people and planet, including how they have been changing hearts and minds by rescuing waste, transforming it into beautiful luxury accessories, whilst also managing to give back to the community at the same time. It's a remarkable story and a timely one too. Thank you for joining us on Designing with Climate in Mind. If you're enjoying the series, please subscribe, leave a comment on our blog or a rating on your podcast channel if you can. Until then, goodbye and thanks for listening. This podcast is powered by Interface. If you'd like to know more about our flooring products and sustainability journey, check us out at interface.com or on Instagram at interface. Thank you too to our producers, Tangerine.